Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Adulting Well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor, and what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show, so you can see you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So for instance, we can have polls, we can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just, uh, that's just one example, but there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, This is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, And if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, Thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well Show. I'm your host, Joshua. I'm here with Kevin and we're doing something a little different this time. Um, we uh, just finished recording our Ian Mackay episode and uh, we're kind of decompressing from that. And I thought uh, we would just chat for a bit before this one. What do you think, Kevin? I think it's a great idea. So a couple of quick things. We did not do any kind of pitch at the end, so I just wanted to remind people that we're donating money to Hospitality House SF through the end of the year. If you give some money to our Patreon, that's where it will go. Uh, check them out, hospitalityhousesf.org. Um, and then... Oh, uh, you should say why we weren't able to do that. Because um, I was a little excited. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, we ended up talking for like... Like what? Forty-five minutes. It just kept going. We like yeah. we, we ended the show and we were doing our normal like. Okay, here's how the tech works. Like, don't you can close your browser, whatever. Right. And then, uh, and then he just started telling stories. Yeah, yeah. We stayed on the we stayed on the on the air with Ian after the interview, and I wish we would have recorded it. I know because it was fantastic. But you know what? It was also nice to get that like personal moment and talk about some things that maybe weren't necessarily for air you know right, right. Uh, so it was it was a it was a fantastic interview i've i've been a fan of of his music as long as i can remember yeah. and um it's always just, good good to tell people about stuff they can't listen to 
<laughs> and that isn't that isn't me being a uh, you know. Oh, guess what we got to do? I just was like so overwhelmingly yeah. excited. Yeah. I didn't want I didn't want to hang up. Um, so uh, it was a great interview, I thought. And he's uh, he's a he's just a really right on guy, and uh, yeah. it just was a lot of fun. Um, so I thought it was was um, powerful because you told me. Um, that your father just passed away right before we recorded this interview. Yes. So, so you're kind of on the heels of that going into what I imagine for you was a very big personal interview for you, like a big yeah. Uh, yeah. moment for you. It was. And my dad uh, was one of those dads that came to see my bands play as much as he did not like the music that I was playing. Wow. <clears throat> and um, he was, you know, he was a hell of a guy. I actually posted his obituary on Facebook for his friends and our family and other people. And it's just the outpouring of love and support has been almost completely overwhelming. Like I, I, I knew he was a good guy and I knew he had a lot of uh, community, but I had no idea. Like I, I really like, you, you know, people the way you know them. And my dad and I were really close. Yeah. We, we were close with each other. Like, you, know, you knew him as your dad. You didn't know him maybe as this guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've gotten a lot of, my mom has gotten a lot of emails and, and, um, a lot of letters, a lot of flowers, a lot of love. And, you know, I, uh, I, I just like, I really, I can't even like, I, I can't actually put into words how truly impactful it is right now, especially with such little personal you know, connection face to face. Sure. Uh, it's been, it's been really nice. And, um, I think, uh, you know, so I'd like to also dedicate this episode to him cause I think he would have liked Ian. <laughs> I think they would have probably stayed on the phone longer than the three of us did uh, <laughs> telling stories to each other. And, you know, they, they definitely both have the gift of, of storytelling. So I, I just like, you know, and th- there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's just a lot to unpack when a, when a parent dies and, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't want to make light of it either. It's a very, very somber time for me, but you know, this is this show working with you on this show and this episode, especially right now was really meaningful. And it, it kind of is one of the things that keeps me going. So, um, I just want to say to everybody that listens, thank you for listening to our show. It, it really means a lot to me. And it, our interviews are very personal. Um, and we don't filter anything out uh, unless specifically asked by a guest that we take something out. But that generally- even I might point out when 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 I put my foot in my mouth, I don't erase yeah, it. We don't erase it, and um, so they're very personal and they're very whatever is you know currently going on in the person's <clears throat> you know kind of stream of conscience. And it's you know it's a very different way, in my opinion, to do um, these kinds of interviews because I know a lot of them are incredibly curated and the you know questions are sent beforehand and you know so I, I just I really love what we do. I think it's really honest and and um, you know I, I appreciate everybody that listens. So Kevin, thanks so much for setting some context. But I think there's only one real question here. What's Did that? your dad prefer engage or siren? <laughs> I think or he preferred- hate least. <laughs> I think he preferred siren. Um <laughs> Uh, him and Brian uh, and Joe Carr uh, were very close. So what? yeah, yeah. Joe, Your dad Joe was close with Brian Zero. Oh my God, my dad loves Brian. Loved him. Brian Zero. I love Brian Zero too. He's definitely one of the weirdest guys I've ever met in my life. I mean, adored. 
you know, my parents adore Brian. My mom went, my okay. mom went to Miriam. Yeah, my mom went to to Miriam's memorial actually, and just hugged Brian. Would not let him oh, go. Geez. Yeah. So right. uh, yeah. So I think I think Siren is the is the sentimental favorite. Um, I don't think they understood any of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we certainly argued over politics at that time, but I will say right. my one, one thing I will give my dad a huge, a huge prop for is, uh, he went out his last Facebook page, his fat last Facebook book photo for his, uh, for his, um, you know, whatever his timeline photo or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. profile photo has a black lives matter banner around it. And jeez, oh, yeah. So I, I, apple tree all that stuff he's he was a he was you know lifelong lifelong liberal and was the most inclusive person i've ever met in my life that's fantastic man what a great way to start the show uh thanks for listening everybody and uh, stay tuned for uh ian mckay Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well podcast. I am your co-host Joshua and I am joined as always by your co-host Kevin. And on the show in this episode, we have Ian Mackay. Uh, as most of you know, the founder of Discord Records and been in more bands than I can say in one breath. So um, Ian, welcome. And thank you so much for doing this uh, relatively late on the East Coast for us. We, we really appreciate it. I'm super excited to have you on. Of course, no problem. I, I just want to clarify that a uh, co-founder of Discord Records. Co-founder, yes. Yeah, of course. One of one of four people, really. Yeah, and that's uh, that actually is important because I know people, um, you know, all did a lot of work to get that going. So, um, you know, I, I we we briefly touched on uh, your new project before we started the show, but I, you know, I, I kind of want to just talk a little bit about you know the state of the world and. Um, and what it's like for you, because when we chatted on the phone earlier, you were uh, there was a possibility of going doing some some stuff, some family stuff. Kind of, how are you doing with things that are going on? Having a kid, you know, all the stuff that's happening in the world right now. How is it in DC and in uh, Virginia area? Well, I live in DC, um, yeah. and Discord House is in Arlington, which is just across the river. Um, I mean, I think I imagine it's. <laughs> It's like most most of the world. It's you know there's a pandemic. The weather is a little bit odd right now, um, but in general, my the way I think about things is that you know you just have to dress accordingly. So obviously, I don't have any control over I don't have any control over the situation in terms of uh, the pandemic. Um, so I have to think. All right, well. I just have to accept that it's occurring and then try to figure out ways to navigate it so that um, I don't add to the problem, really. So I don't, I don't, you know, it's, it's a different life, but I feel pretty clear about things. It's just, you know, just a different set of circumstances at this point. And yeah. not to make light at all of anybody um, who has suffered um, uh, as a result of the illness or as a result of the economic you know, problems that are, you know, have occurred and are sure to occur in the future. Um, but I, I have to, th- I have to say it's like a natural disaster. And, um, when you think about it like that, you know, if it was a flood or a forest fire or an earthquake, you know, these things, um, 
who can stop them? So right. uh, you just just have to contend with them. And I guess that's what all I'm doing is contending with them. And I don't you know. I mean, I have a yes. I mean, we have a Amy and I have a 12 year old son. But I think that you know we're we're um, we've been doing, doing pretty well. We've been hanging in there. And I think one thing one interesting thing is that when the sort of quarantine stuff started, I think a lot of people were really um, felt at first. I think were very challenged by the idea that they would be sort of in close quarters with the same people. But mm-hmm. as somebody who is toured and toured and toured and toured, <laughs> you know, this actually being in close quarters with the same people, you know, I'm kind of used to it. And then having to accept each day as it comes, that's my life. Right. So I, it's just, I, I, I actually, I think that's a really interesting point because I've, I've talked to a couple of friends about that. And, you know, I, I did some touring in my early 20s definitely not as extensively as you or as for many years, but, uh, you know, I felt like that was like the training ground. The biggest difference right now is this is kind of, I'm not always positive that I toured with, with people that I totally wanted to be with all the time, but I chose the group that I'm with now, like fully committed as an adult. This is who I want to spend my life with. So I think it's a really, really good point. What has it been like with Discord during this time? Because I know when I ordered the record, there was some delays with getting it out because of you all not wanting to con- conflict with your distributor who couldn't open because they're here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it? Is it? I mean, and you're, you're very. I mean, to me, and and maybe it's different for other people, but Discord has been always been a very, uh, you know, product sort of uh, driven record label. Like I love getting the actual record or in at one point CD and at one point before that record again, um, and actually having that tactile sort of thing. How, how's it been for, for you to kind of navigate that part of it? Did you really just skip over a cassette? Were you not a cassette kid? I was a cassette kid, but all right. You, you, know, you skipped right over that. I, I always had, I always had a, had a, had a, an actual phonograph. So yeah. my, Can I my, tell you, my dad we, was really into records. So I, that was kind of my thing. When we put out, when we put out, um, I think it was Repeater. Repeater sold something like seventy thousand vinyl, like in the first couple, first year, and one hundred and twenty thousand cassettes. <laughs> it was insane. Cassettes were so huge right yeah. around nineteen ninety, ninety nine or ninety. Um, it's bizarre. Like we sold <laughs> so many cassettes, and then it was interesting because what I remember when. Basically, what that represented was that kids all across the country and then in other parts of the world, but especially in the United States, all got cassette players in their rooms. Sure. And sure. so that's what was selling, cassettes. And then in the early, I say by 94, I think Christmas 94 maybe, every kid in America got a CD Walkman or something. Like they mm-hmm. got a CD player. Because mm-hmm. totally sure. I remember when we did, I think it was Red Medicine, we – um, this is Fugazi's Red Medicine record. There's a long, we always had these long discussions about trying to guess how much to press. And I think on Kill Taker, which would have been the record before, we'd sold, you know, a hundred, some 150,000 cassettes. But it didn't feel like we were going to sell that many cassettes with uh, Red Medicine. And so we really tried to be um, super conservative, guessing how many to press. And I think we pressed something like, 40,000 or something. And, mm-hmm. um, and I remember that it just didn't sell. And at some point, 
we had something like 30,000 cassettes sitting in a warehouse. And I mean, I've asked this, um, I've asked this, uh, this question to people before, but what what do you call a record or a cassette that you don't listen to? What's another name for it? You mean that you never listen to? It just sits right. around. Yeah, it never gets listened to. I mean, it's just uh, it's just like nostalgic crap at that point. <laughs> right, a piece of fucking trash. It really yeah. is. <laughs> so when we press rec, when we press records. You know, what we really are thinking about when we, when we set pressings is that we realize that what activates these pieces of plastic, whether they're CDs or vinyl or cassettes or whatever, what makes them into something that has some power or some actual resonance is someone listening to it. Mm, so right. anything that you make that no one listens to, you're just adding to this enormous pile of garbage that already exists in the world. And yeah. so we've always tried to be very, very thoughtful about how many things to make. We don't want to make trash, period. Um, it's, you know, again, like it's it's only magical if, if someone's listening to it. Was that uh, really part of the thought process at that time? Absolutely. That's amazing. Wow. So... So we are faced with these 30,000 some cassettes sitting in a warehouse and I had been approached by uh, some people in Poland um, who really wanted to reissue some of our records on, they wanted to reissue the record on cassette and also some people in um, China who were talking about it. So we worked it out to sell them the cassettes we'd already had for, you know, 50 cents, (laughs) which would have been cheaper than what they would have been able to make them but it was more than we had paid for them you know so so that worked out but it was really the just seeing the bottom drop out on the cassette market was (laughs) profound and cds just obliterated everything for a while um and then of course now you know digital has obliterated everything um and even though people talk about the vinyl renaissance really the vinyl renaissance is a pretty modest renaissance i mean if we sell i mean i think right now the curriculum record is sold six or seven thousand copies vinyl which is for our purposes great mm-hmm. but you know but when you think about the fact that you know repeater sold something like two hundred fifty thousand copies it's it kind of gives you a sense of the uh, disparity between the actual physical item now i'm not uh, i'm not actually a formatist like i don't right. whatever i don't care the music every song i ever wrote i wrote to be heard yeah, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the point. So, well, well, I think that that's proof positive by the massive Fugazi digital catalog on your website, right? Well, that, I mean, well, that's yes. I mean, of course, but I mean, just in general, I think people. You know what's funny about that, Ian? Uh, Larry Livermore, who we had on the show too, was talking about how it, he thought it was funny the way like modern punks will do like cassette tapes and like Kinko's flyers and stuff like that because he's just like that's just all we had. Like we weren't trying to be. Like, cool. Yeah, Yeah, right, right. (laughs) It was contemporary media at the time. Right. Uh, It was, yeah, it was, that was, it was what we refer to as the art of necessity. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I I think that's a really good take. Has, has obviously then digital is, has kind of changed how you all do things at the record label. Um, Uh, To some degree, sure. It's just a different, it's just another, another way. I mean, I prefer, I mean, what I like about um, 
physical products is I like the frame. Right. I like mm-hmm. having like here's the record, the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, it's funny with CDs when they came along. It took me a while to figure out what the flaw with CDs was as opposed to vinyl. Um, vinyl has two sides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And usually they're 15 to 20 minutes a side. So it's easy to sit down and really give a study to 15 or 20 minutes. Right. And mm-hmm. then you can, next time you come and you put the second side on, you might listen to those. But CDs, you know, you could fit 70 minutes worth of music. And so everyone put 70 minutes worth of music on there and there was one side. And if I had been involved with the development of the CD player, I would have had two play buttons. And the second play button would have found the middle point of the CD. Because what you found was that when you sequence an album, a vinyl record, you think a lot about the beginning, the first song, the second song for both sides. Like what's the lead off song? But with a CD, it was just the first three songs. And then after that, it was like whatever else. They just kind of threw stuff in there. Just kind of fluffed it. Right. It just got, you know, and like, and they became, it's funny, like, especially when you listen to a lot of the early hip hop records, you know, you have the the hits up up top. And then it was just like 64 minutes of of other stuff that was no one can remember, you know. Um, And I think that that it would, it wears you out like an hour, just listening for an hour is hard. Um, Yeah, for sure. I don't think that, that that also changes how, like, if I think about my favorite CDs, I only kind of know the first four or five songs. Like, like when I, like all the vinyl records, I know the whole thing because I'd flip them and everything. But my first CDs were, you know, like Elvis Costello, Spike, and they might be Giants Flood, and it's like, yeah, the first five songs on both, right? And that's and it's really it was a really interesting um, development. It's something that I didn't think about till later because when CDs first came along as Discord, we were thinking, well, we can take advantage of this format by putting two records on each CD because they are seventy minutes long. Some of the records were, you know, so we were able to put, say, with Dag Nasty, we put. The first record, can I say, and wig out both on the same record. Right. Um, we did that with a number we call the maxi CDs. We charge a dollar or more for them, or something like that. Um, in retrospect, it was, I think, a disservice to the individual albums. Right. Um, but at the time, we were really thinking about it as like, well, how can we take advantage of this boutique um, format? How can you? How can we take advantage of it to actually offer some like economy to the? Um, but it, 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 in retrospect, I think it was a mistake, and we did try to actually. You know, we reissued a lot of that stuff as separate CDs back when people bought CDs. Now with digital, there's just no frame at all, and right. that's really it's really interesting because for those of us who make records, like we really think about the sequence, like the Kariki record, we really thought about the sequence. Fugazi. We spent forever thinking about the sequence, like how the arc of the record, you know, and um, which I, as an aside, I thought I'd, I'd bring this up, which I always thought was very interesting as well, which is, do you remember there was a series of um, bands would get back together and they would do these shows where they would play just this, their most famous record. One record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This one Dr. record. Spell did that with right. uh, so, Perfect from Now On. Yeah. So, so. And I mean, a number of bands that did it. I saw Devo do it yeah, with uh, Devo did it. That's right. Awesome. And so, and it was cool. But there, I was watching, and I go, "This is so interesting." Because when you think about the arc of a record, like you have side A and side B, mm-hmm. and the fir- the strong song usually is, you know, 
the first couple of songs on side A or, you know, and then the first couple of songs on side B. The last song on side B is usually sort of like the, like, yeah, oh yeah, here's another song. But at a show, the last song is the encore. It's supposed to sort you know, quite right. t- typically. So when, when I was watching that show, they played the songs in order and I thought, it's just weird. Because you know what the encore is going to be, right? No, but it, but now you know it. But it's just not the. It's like a toss. It's, just, it's like a, it's like an extra like a song. It wasn't. It was a song they didn't really expect anyone to hear. Right. But but they That's sort really of. Funny. And it's really totally interesting. Like what happened? Like what if you flipped the order when you did? If you did live album concerts, you just did it like you, flipped. You, yeah, you could do. You could, I mean, I imagine people did that. I only saw one or two of them. I saw yeah. the Devo one. I have to say, the Devo one was here in D.C. and it was incredible they did um the first record i think yeah it must have been the first record and it was great but it did have this weird ending the last song was just the last song on side b but they came out and did an encore of um some of their other like you know whip it or i don't know what some songs that were more like hits more popular yeah right and then they left the stage and the show had only been on for like 50 minutes because the record is only 38 minutes long right Mm -hmm. And yeah. the people, I mean, I didn't pay to get in, but the sh- tickets were like 50 bucks or 60 yeah. bucks, whatever they were. So people were justifiably and understandably not happy. Yeah. Right. And there were more, more, more. And they started chanting more, more, more. And the lights went on and the crowd started chanting bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> oh, no. And I was like, this is incredible. Like what is yeah. seen, you know? And then the Devo guys came back on stage in their street clothes and they did um, "Beautiful World," oh. and Bougie Boy sang it. Um, and, Amazing! And I yeah. talked to one of the guys who was working with them, and I said, "Do they do this every night?" And he says, "I don't know. If they've ever done a show in their street clothes." But they—I think they thought the show Whoa. was over. And I have to say, it was an incredible moment. Yeah, they, they brought it so. And I actually, it's a band, that's one of the bands, like early on and late, I mean, I started seeing gigs in 79 and I could have seen Devo, but they were at that time, like we were being always ridiculed. Right. People would call us Devo. So we just thought like they were this terrible new wave band. And it's one of the bands that I really regret not seeing at that time. Yeah. I, did, I did see B-52s early on. I saw them right after the Yellow record and wow. that was an incredible show. Yeah. Amazing show. Um but I didn't go see Devo and I wouldn't have gone to see, I didn't see B-52s the next time because at that point, you know, we were tired of being called rock lobster. So it was sort of like, <laughs> but in retrospect, I really, really wish I had gone to see Devo because I, I think that they were um, much more. Um, yeah. They, there was something They're going on there. Incredible. Much band. more serious. I, yeah. I saw them at a little place um, called the Katati Cabaret. <laughs> um, when I was 17, it was an 18 and over show. And my, my little brother, 16 at the time, talked us in at the door wow. because he was just such a huge fan at that time. I mean, he was like obsessed with them. What town totally. was this? Uh, Katati, right outside of Santa Rosa, just north of Petaluma <laughs> oh, okay. area. You're yeah, up that so, way. All right. Yeah, I grew up in Santa Rosa. So, in oh, fact, yeah. I saw Fugazi at, uh, at the Phoenix Theater. Yes. Yeah. I yep. remember the Phoenix Theater. Amongst some other shows around that time. But. Santa Rosa, keeping it real. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that is right. Santa Rosa. Um, and we had, you know, we, we, we definitely took a lot of, uh, a lot of 
sort of lines out of the the discord playbook in terms of like putting out records i had a little record label we only put out stuff from our local bands and it was it was fun it was a fun time i'm not what gonna was lie your label, what was your label called well i had i worked with curb dog who did um like a bunch of like they did some victims family stuff and then they uh-huh. did band, a bunch of bands that ended up on um lookout records were on their label like who? Um, uh nuisance uh-huh one yeah. man running yeah. um you know, uh, there was there was there was a few bands that that, and then I was in a band called Siren up there. Um, mm-hmm. So we and we hit Brian, uh, our singer, wrote for Maximum Rock and Roll at the time. So um, Brian who? Brian Zero. Oh, I remember the name. Yeah, yeah. He did that. He did the whole uh, article with Steve Albini about uh, corporate uh, invasion of of the punk scene. Right. Um, that, right. that big. That big. Yeah. Uh, that big issue. Uh, some of your friends are already this fucked. Yeah, so, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we had, I, you know, we had a great little scene up there. Phoenix was a great place to play. We had a couple of local little cafes that would let us do shows. And, you know, I actually, I think I booked a, a discord band called Los Morditas to play at our studio. Yeah. Yeah. It was sort of discord related. It was Doug and, and Chris yeah. and those guys. Yeah. They're great band. Yeah. I, mean, I think Santa Rosa had its own real unique, like it was cool. Like that, the thing about, I mean, California is such a peculiar state because it really is like people i think largely think of sort of monolithically they think of california but it's such a uh, textured and uh, wide variety of places mm-hmm. you know from yeah. south to north i mean and fugazi played we played a lot of, you know we played you know we played chico we played up in yeah. wairica we you know we did arcada <laughs> yeah we did arcada we know at the, you at the armory oh, yeah. you at the armory that show yeah i went to that show yeah what a mess that was but the yeah, uh that was uh yeah <laughs> You know, but a, I think I think I might have even gone from with Chris from Lookout to that show. Wait, what happened? Yeah. Can you tell one story? Like, why was that show a mess? Oh, it was just in an armory, and it sounded terrible. And it the didn't kid up there, at all. yeah, it was just a big giant hangar. And the and Northern California punk kids at that time, they were they're they're pretty. There's some sketchy kids up there. It was just I mean, there's mm-hmm. just sketchy kids everywhere. But Northern California had a really <laughs> specific kind of sketchiness, you know. I think that you know, it just it was it was very it was an interesting time. I mean, those yeah, shows, I mean, those shows, you know, we would play basically anywhere. I think we took a, or I took a page out of um, the Black Flag playbook, which was, um, you know, they would Black Flag would go out and do a, a loop around the country, mm-hmm. and then they would you know wash your clothes and get back in the van and do another loop, but play the next town over. So right. you know, instead oh, wow. of playing. Washington, they play Baltimore instead of playing, you know, uh, New York, they play Albany or, you know, whatever. It's like they would just play. And as a result, first off, it was really, it was, in, it was like a good inspiration in terms of coverage, but also um, it just meant that it, it, you know, they had numbers for people, mm-hmm. um, but also it kind of planted seeds. I mean, I have this, you know, um, I have a, I'm, and it may not be true. I talked actually not so long ago. I spoke to Joey Shithead about this, but I have a sort of a theory about the way the American punk um, touring network developed, which was that in the very beginning, um, you know, of course, the club scene was largely controlled by the industry. So, mm-hmm. so the punk bands that came over, like largely bands like, say, The Damned or even you know the Sex Pistols, they were coming through sort of major label stuff and they were having regular agencies and stuff like that. So they were playing kind of traditional venues. Um, 
So they would play New York and L.A. or they play New York, L.A. and San Francisco. Or maybe they come to Washington if they want to do a warm up a gig or something. But it was mm-hmm. very limited in their right. touring. The first band that really started to carve out a, um, a really unique kind of uh, network was DOA from Vancouver. And mm. I think they were just driven. I mean, obviously yeah. – an incredible band, but just great live band. Yeah, just they just wanted to play, and they were working with a couple of guys, um, uh, and I don't, I can't remember which one. Maybe it was Lori Mercer. I don't remember which one. There was a couple of different people they worked with, but one of them or both of them were were had been had some connection with the um, Revolutionary Workers Party, which was a sort of communist um, revolutionary communist workers party, um, right. and they. And the Yippies, essentially, like people involved with the Yippie movement in the, yep. in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. And so they toured and they their places they played were largely these weird um, kind of radical spaces. So DOA played in Washington, D.C. Uh, in October of 1979 at a, a hippie kind of co-op place called Madame's Organ. Um it's one of my great – I don't know if you guys have regrets about missing shows. Oh, yeah. But I, yeah, I was sure. sick that night. I was sick, Ugh. and I just couldn't go to the show. And it was – to this day, it's like I have a cassette of the show, and I've listened to it so many times, and it's like one of the shows that I can't believe I didn't wasn't there for it. Um, but the fact that they came just blew us all away that they came to Washington. And yeah. then Black Flag – you know, they also come from this strong ethic of playing, but they were largely limited to the West Coast. But they made their way up to Vancouver. And I think DOA actually came to Cal- to Los Angeles, and they and Dukowski and the other Black Flag people met them, and they said you should come to Vancouver. So they went to the Black Flag made it to Vancouver, and I think, and I've actually verified this with Chuck Dukowski, the bass player of Black Flag, and the person mm-hmm. who booked a lot of the shows. I said you went up there with a the blank notebook, didn't you? And he said definitely. So he just took all the numbers he could get for all these weird places and started oh, yeah. to use that as like his the beginning of his network. So he went out and played. They Black Flag started touring in 1981. They made their first cross country tour, and they they came through and they had got and you know of course they were also everybody was calling each other. Like I had called, um, yeah. I had called SST. Um, just because we love Black Flag so much, and they had a phone number on an ad, and I just called them in 1980 and said, "Like, hi, we're from Washington, and we love your band." And we just became, you know, we started talking. We talk on the phone regularly. I may have even helped them, like, told, suggested they could play a 9:30 club, whatever it was. But so we ended up having this kind of it just developed, and then Dukowski this keeps booking Black Flag, keep playing, and then when Meyer Threat starts touring. He just gives me a list of phone numbers, right? See, that's insane to me because <laughs> by the time – so I started going to shows in 92. I was a sophomore in high school. But by the time I started – so right around then I also started hitchhiking around. And it didn't matter if you were hitchhiking or in a band. Like my first time out of Santa Rosa by myself, I just had some phone numbers and some names that some punks had given me, my friends. Right. And I'm able to go to any town right. and call this number. And there's a punk house, there's shows, there's, I'm complete. It, it was amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I th- and I think it still exists by the way. It's just not yeah. phone numbers. It's email now, addresses yeah, it's email, yeah. people are still looking out. I think that, yeah. you know, people, I always, 
punk will never die. It might be called something different, but this this sort of the the necessity for the underground that always exists because the overground exists, you know. Right. So it's still going on, and like you know, you you're talking about ninety two. I'm talking about seventy nine, eighty, eighty one, mm-hmm. and you know, it's just mm-hmm. of different variations. Um, you know, like there weren't. I mean, by eighty one, there were these punk houses, but they might have been dim- a little, a quite a little different than the ones you were going to. Like, mm-hmm. not this. I mean, I'm not saying. Um, I mean, ob- I'm sure they weren't the same houses. Period. But I mean, but a slightly different. Um, they weren't like house show. Like you're going to house shows, I imagine, mm-hmm. to some degree. Yeah, yeah. Basement Whereas, shows. Right, but we were like in every town there was a house where the punks lived, and that's where you stayed. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That's where you would stay. So, and yep. I, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think Discord House is the sole remaining part of that network. Like the actual, mm. like it's still there. the The building is there, and it's still basically the same. It's still Discord House. Um, it's you know, we've, I've you know, we've I've had it. It'll be thirty nine years in October. Um, and uh, right, it's crazy. Um, and I don't think. I mean, some of the other structures might be there, but there's somebody else living, some family in there. I think this, and I think, you know, it's, you know, it's a fucking cultural artifact at this point, you know? Yeah. You know, it's like a part of something, it's an invisible history. And and I've, I've read like, just like blog posts, random people that have called you guys or you and come out and just done a like visit that, you know? Well, I think there was a period, (laughs) there's a period of time where I think we must've been on some weird, you know, tour photo like everybody had to come get their picture on the porch or something yes <laughs> it's true it's true because i kept seeing so that funny. my friends would do that too like i don't know what it was but i've seen those Re- photos. reenact the iconic photo of you guys yeah. right yeah. but what's yeah. interesting what's interesting now by the way just you know yeah is that i haven't had a single porch photo taken since february hmm. well, right yeah and that like and it's really interesting like you cannot imagine, like, on any given summer day, usually, like, I would say it would some, – sometimes it could be people would show up every day just to take a picture on the porch. There would oh, be wow. times I would leave – I'd walk out the front door and there would be a bunch of people sitting on my porch. Um, it's one of the is reasons actually okay? – It is okay. Um, I, I would mean, say of all yeah. the, the thousands of people that have come, there's been maybe one or two – Ne'er do wells. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good, you know. And um, I will say though that one of the reasons, you know, I moved out of Discord House um, in two thousand and three, and one of the reasons that I think I felt like I had to leave that house was that I had become a docent in my own house. Um, Yeah. You know, people mm. would show up and I'd say, oh, yeah, well, here's this room. Here's the office. Here's where this happened. They're like, oh, my God, and that's the porch. And here's where we practice. And But also, it's sort of like, and here's where I shit. You know, it just felt weird. Like It was, like, <laughs> right. it was my home, right? And I and to some degree, there was a, a sense that um, um, I, I felt like oh, maybe I need to s- split this up. You know, because I, I was – I had right, been yeah. living there at that point for 21 years or yeah. Yeah, 21 years. It was just time – to not live there. I love the place. I still, you know, I own it. I go out there, you know, usually four days a week or five days a week and work. And, you know, it's a, it's a great spot, but I'm glad I don't live there anymore. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I could see where it would become almost like a, it would almost become like a, you know, like a sort of a, you're, you're like tied to it in a way, if you're living there and working there and you've got people stopping by constantly. 
Right, and it yeah, gets it's, like, it's like working at uh, Jim Morrison's grave. <laughs> yeah. Just a little, uh, I don't know about that. I'm but. not sure about that, but um, I think what's more interesting about it is it is sort of for me. It's, it was my home. And yep. I didn't, it didn't feel weird. Like, for instance, like where you live, you might leave something personal out on your table, for instance, or your desk, right. because it's your desk. You're not thinking that you're going to be giving tours to people, especially people who are maybe have an exaggerated interest in what you're up to. So they might look, survey the things on your desk and glean things, even if, you know, like maybe I had an experience many years ago. Um, where a guy, there was a, a Mormon guy, a kid, and he was a runaway, and he'd shown up at our house, and this is many, many years ago. And um, he was a nice, very nice kid. Uh, he had left the church, and he was pretty agonized about the whole situation. Um, and as I recall, one of the things that he was specifically upset about was that he was really in love with this, you know, young woman who was, but she was still in the church, and, um, you know, they couldn't be together because you have to be in the, you know, they'd have to be married. He had to be, he'd have to return to the fold if they wanted to be married. Anyway, this was going on. And he, I think he actually left, came back. There's a couple of different times. And at some point he left for good. And, um, and I was, you know, I didn't have anything bad to say about the Mormon church. I just was trying to help him navigate. And mm-hmm. I get a package in the mail from him. And in there, it's a letter, and it says, when you're ready for the truth, read this. And he had sent a Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. Which meant, right, he had gone back. And of course, you know, he had gone back to the fold, which is fine for him. Yep. But I don't really need to have the truth explained to me. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know what the fucking truth is for me. So right. I was like, huh. And I put it on my desk and thought about, I need to think about how I'm going to respond. I'm not going to know. So that's just right. my way. I did an interview at some point with somebody, a fanzine, they came by and they interviewed me. And when the issue came out, the interviewer said, oh, he's a Mormon. Oh, no. What? Because he saw the Book of Mormon on my desk. Oh, my God. And then that explained, like, my ethics or whatever in, in his mind. And so this is where you, you start realizing, like, it becomes a really delicate kind of um, – situation when you your personal life is all tied up with where people come to look yeah and, and i don't know if you ever notice like if you look at if you ever seen interviews with me on a video or in a movie or something almost sure. always i'm sitting in the same place at discord yes. house and mm. in, and if you check it out i sit in a neutral corner there's yeah. nothing in the background except those windows and you might see a car parked you might see some leaves in the, out the window but there's nothing behind me because I don't. I just realize that's the neutral corner where people can't try to figure out like what it is I'm reading or what, right. you know, right. or whatever, right. whatever you know. So it just became my spot to do interviews. Plus, it's good light. Well, it's such an interesting perspective too because I I know I'm not really sure that I would want anyone taking a snapshot of my my bedside table at any given time and see all that's what I'm funny, reading. Kevin. Because I just realized if I ever get interviewed for some reason, I'm going to leave the weirdest books out now. <laughs> you know, Do because it. who knows? Because I read a lot of different things about a lot of different things, and I'm a, I'm an avid reader. I just you know, and I've actually read part of the Book of Mormon. <laughs> 
I'm right. certainly not, not a I, Mormon. Right. There's no issue. That's the thing. There's no issue. It's mostly what how people is how they're interpreting things. It's their filters. That's all. Well, well, and I mean, in some ways. I guess you could see where it would line up. I mean, given the fact that they're like the the no the the no drugs or smoking or you know drinking, like they would be. Oh, of course, because people want to look for something that makes more sense to their brains, other than that's just your ethos, right? Like it, it's I mean, such a it's I such mean, a. Easy, I think beyond the. I mean, it's just it's just the way I. It's just who yeah. I am. It's not no. that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I think that. Um, yeah, I think there's a. I, I, human beings like to connect the dots. They do. Yeah. And I'm not mad. Honestly, I'm not even mad. I'm happy. For, I mean, I hope I never heard from that guy again, the Mormon guy. Right I on. hope his life is good. Like, I don't yeah. wish you, I don't wish you on anybody. I'm not even really mad at the interviewer. What I, what I came away with was, was this, um, was a lesson about yeah. mm-hmm. how, like, I think, you know, I am, I'm a thoughtful person about, you know, how I conduct my affairs. And, and, and there are a lot of times where I make a decision about how to approach something, which is really largely based on the idea that I don't want to spend a lot of time later on explaining it because it's a waste of time having to sit there and like, no, you misunderstood this. I mean, one thing I can't stand is when people float nonsense rumors, then I have to deal with. Right. It just drives me nuts um, because I have other things to do. I don't want to have to explain. No, you know, I, you know, no, I, I mean, I can't, even, I mean, I'm not going to make any examples right now, but there have been over the years, a number of hoaxes or things that was, yeah, then I have to like, people will call me and they're like, what happened or what's going on? I'm like, okay, here's the situation. And it's just ridiculous. I mean, yeah. I, I'll give you a good example. Actually, here's an example. Um, some years ago, um, a local, uh, the weekly paper here, uh, contacted uh, um, somebody at Discord and saying, "Hey, uh, we hear so I've, maybe somebody did a blog thing about the fact that Urban Outfitters are selling Meyer Threat shirts." And right. so, the weekly, because they're so starved for stories, um, I guess you know you have to you know you have the content the content damn it. Um, they call and they said, "Is this true? Can we verify this?" And I mean, it, it was true, but it had been they'd been in it been the Meyer Thread shirts had been selling in Urban Outfitters for I don't know how long because I don't care. It's not I don't like basically the way it works is that each band decides for itself how they want to proceed in terms of merchandise. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Fugazi, we do not make merchandise. In the case of Meyer Thread, it's a democracy. I was outvoted. So fair enough. I don't have any problem with it. And there was a company that made these T-shirts, and they sell the shirts to whoever they sell them to. It doesn't matter to me because I think shirts are – I think they're ridiculous anyway. You know, mm-hmm. like I don't wear band shirts. And I mean I think if a band makes some shirts and they want something to get them down the road – Cool. I'm all for it. But if people are buying clothing as a status symbol, I find that not so interesting. Um, so this reporter kept calling, going like, well, can you verify? And then we just, I think I just wrote back. It's like, I told the guy, just tell him, you know, yes, whatever. And then they wanted to comment. And finally she, she called a couple times and I just picked up the phone and called her, or she was texting or writing or whatever. So I called her and I said, I said to her, I don't care. 
Like, I just right. don't care about this. It's not important. I go, you know, um, I don't know why, like to me, I don't know why it's any, why it makes more sense for someone to pay $16 for a shirt in a punk boutique versus someone who pays $30 in an Urban Outfitters. I don't know why. It seems, all seems ridiculous to me. And I just, so, just don't care. So then the headline was, Makai doesn't care, decides to sell shirts in Urban Outfitters. Oh my God. <laughs> and then, uh, that must be so hard for you because it sounds like, I don't I don't know you. I've just met you, but you seem like you're pretty, like pretty easygoing and thoughtful, and you just have a, a direction you go in that that feels good to you. But because of of your position as a semi famous person in these bands mm-hmm. and everything, like every little move you make is part of this bigger. Like people have made a movement out of just like your casual interests or your your. I don't know if they're casual. But yes, but, yeah, right, not, right. Not, I mean, I, 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 sorry, not casual, but yeah. but well, it's just like like you said, it's just who you are. It's just, I mean, they're just. I mean, look, just, I'm, I I do. I am like, I'm trying to be provocative. Like I didn't, you know, I mean, the songs I've written, I mean yes. them. I meant them when I wrote them, and I mean them still. I stand behind mm-hmm. my lyrics, and you know, I also was, you know, learning, learning about how best to communicate. You know, when you're you know, I have a 12 year old son. The way he communicates is pretty different than the way I communicate as a 58 or a 58 year old, right? Yeah. You know, when I was 18 or 17 or 18 or 19 years old, I chose ways to communicate that were have evolved, of course. You know, mm-hmm. when, like, in, with Minor Threat, for instance, when I wrote a song, my, what I thought, what I thought was if I write a lyric that is so direct, like just to the point, Mm-hmm. That you, it would people would not be able to misinterpret it. That was wow. the idea to say it exactly the way it is, and that way there's no no wiggle room. They have to understand it. What I didn't understand at the time, which I didn't grasp at the time, is that when you make a hammer, you can use that hammer to build something, or you can use it to kill somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. So. What I essentially had done was created, I had presented to people finished ideas. And I would say the vast majority of the people who engaged those those ideas did good things with them. And some people did things that were not so good with them. Mm-hmm. But I can't control it once it's out. No, I you can't. Res- transmission, sure. Reception, that's out of my hands. That's other people. So then as I developed and evolved, I realized Ah, you know, don't make like if you think of clothes, like if you think of songs, sorry, as like clothing, mm-hmm. or that early some of the early songs were like uniforms, and anybody could just slip them on and use them for their purposes. Which Again, is great when you're a teenager, right? Because right. you're looking for an identity package that's easy that you can just go, okay, here's the rules, let's go. Right. So if you think about, for instance, religion. It's a really any religion. People can take a religious concept and they can slip it on and use it for good or for ill. Yeah. Right. So, um, and same with uh, nationalism. Right. I mean, that's sure. a, you know perfect example of like people you can use it for good or for ill. So, uh, so I was like, oh, I see. Like, I created uniforms or clothing that people could slip on and wear. So by the time I was in Fugazi, I was thinking, 
create quality fabric and make mm. people make make them work put make them have to put some investment in this so it's not something they can just slip on oh geez wow that was sort right. of the idea so it was an evolution so but i've always tried to provoke something some thought so i mm-hmm. when you say casual no not casual sorry that was a right fucking like yeah. mint it mint it and was trying to get a rise out of people. I'll take the lump for that. That was on me. And, you know, and in some ways there's things about, you know, there's some things that have been like, all right, well, that's, that ended up being a lot more work than I intended, but that's all right. You know, it's, it is what it is. So, so, I mean, it sounds to me like to some degree too, the, the delivery has changed, not so much the process. Like you still are intending to make sure that, that the things you're saying you mean, obviously, but also to to elicit a response from whoever's listening to it. But the method is not quite as in your face as it once was. Is that would that be fair? Yeah, I'm thinking about that because it's funny with the evens, for instance. Mm-hmm. Because of people's sort of um, relationship with or their other grasp of what is aggressive or whatever that, you know, they think, Oh, it has to be loud and it has to be fast, whatever. And, um, they quite often would dismiss the event or sort of, I would say, or subtly dismiss it as sort of, they'd say, Oh, it's sort of a folk thing or an indie rock thing. But in my mind, the evens, like you're in a room, like inches away from the people making the music and there's no, there's no barrier whatsoever. It's not like, you know, you know, there's that famous thing about, Oh, punk, we break down the barrier between the audience and the band, but they go see them at clubs and there's a, there's a barrier there, you know? (laughs) Right. But the evens, like it was, there was nothing like you were, it was like right there. And I would say that the presentation was so naked that to me, that was super, um, in your face. Yeah. But, I think that people, again, like there's like, it just depends on how, what, what, if you define punk, for instance, as, you know, fast and loud and, you know, right. You know, chewing bubble gum spiked hair. I don't know, whatever you, whatever it is people think makes something punk. Mm-hmm. Probably not the, what I think is punk. I think punk is the free space where the new idea gets to be presented, you know, without profit calling the shots. For sure. Right. So that to me, that's punk. So when I see a band or a musician or an artist do something um, that is really mind blowing, it is so challenging. I don't care what what form it takes. Right. You know, to me, that's in my face because right. they're presenting a new idea. Um, now, part of the problem that Evans ran into is that I was in a band. Mm-hmm. It was blessing and a curse, you know, the blessing and a curse. Cause I think that people have been trying to understand, you know, largely they always, they always look at my tail. Right. Mm. They always look at the tail and they're like, Oh yeah. You know, you know, oh, look, minor threat or whatever. And, right. and then they try to understand what this thing is based on the tail, mm. but that's behind me. Not yeah. this podcast. What are you, what are you doing next week? Yeah, exactly. We're, we're always know. curious about that. I never think about the future. <laughs> what are you so, doing? <laughs> so talking about the evens and, and then rolling into Kariki, like 
how is that? And I know it's kind of a generic question. Actually, it's, no, it's not. It's a it's a real question. What? How? How is it working with your your wife on these creative projects? You two are obviously very close and have known each other a really long time beyond being married. Oh yeah. Um, and so, I mean, every couple has their moments, good and bad. And you two are doing like you were touring together in the evens, writing yeah. together. Yeah. Now you're not touring off for obvious reasons, but writing together in, in Koriki. And it seems like a very, like there's a, it's a very, uh, at least from what I could read and, and hear on the record in terms of there's multiple people doing vocals. It seems like a very all in participatory band. Like everybody's there to contribute. Um, and how, how is that process working and playing and living with your, with your partner? Um, well, that's good. I mean, Amy and I have known each other for, getting towards 30 years now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, we like each other. Obviously. (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, uh, you know, you know, we made a person together. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, and I think that, uh, I understand when people say, Oh, couples have their moments. Sure. And so do friendships. Moments are moments. And, um, and, um, but I would say, by and large, like our commitment to music and to creation, the three of us, not just me and Amy. I mean, Joe's yeah. right in there, too. too. Yeah. And I mean, don't forget, like, I mean, I live with Joe for 12 years. Yeah. And he was in the, I was in a band with him for, I mean, he was the first person in Fugazi with me. Yeah. I mean, Joe, and you, like Joe and I started playing together in September of 1986. And we crazy. played with another drummer. Um, Colin Sears from Dag Nasty for about Man. until December. And then he went back to Dag Nasty and we needed a drummer. And Brendan was practicing at Discord House with, uh, I think it was, he's still in one last wish. He might have just been starting Happy Go Licky at that point. And we just asked if you just want to sit in with us. We kept saying, we're not forming a band. We just want to play music. And that's always been the way. We just want to play right. music. So the same way when Joe came back from Italy in 2015, I said, do you want to play music? And he said, yes. And we've been playing together. The three of us have been playing together since 2015. Yeah. We just play and play. And we actually have been playing straight through the pandemic. We play. That's great. We, we played uh, Monday. I think we're going to practice tomorrow. We just are going to, we just play. We get together, the three of us, and we just play music together. And um, at some point we decided, well, I guess we should, <laughs> maybe we should do a show. And I, the first shows we did actually were these, we would just invite friends over and we'd hand them a, a basically a, like a list of our songs. They'd pick a song, we'll play it for you. And we have like three people there, and we did like maybe five or six of those. Oh, that's fun. oh wow! It's just that like we call it like a it was like um, yeah, it was like a public practice. The idea was to sort <laughs> of figure out you know because we've been practicing to, for ourselves forever. We need some a way to kind of like oh yeah, how do you how do you play this live like in front right. of other people? And then we did a couple of shows with no name. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, our first show, I think, was we called it an open practice. Mm-hmm. You know, come join Ian, Amy, and Joe for an open practice. And 500 people came. Um, and uh, and then we did, and then at some point, uh, the name Cricky came up. Actually, Brendan was the one who, Brendan Canty was the one who gave us that name. Uh, we were. So we, uh, I've got a little backstory on that because you know we interviewed Dunstan, right? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Is that, is, is that the the British version of Liars Dice? Is that correct? It is, but Dun yeah, but we didn't learn from Dunstan. We did learn we learned it from a British guy. 
Yeah. But it wasn't Dunstan. That's funny. We may have taught Dunstan it though. Did he say he knew it? <laughs> he just said that he he did he actually didn't fully know where it was learned, but he knew Fugazi loved playing it. Oh yeah. So well, he, he he didn't he wasn't going to fully take credit. He wasn't like, "Oh, I taught them." But he he said, "I believe they learned it maybe at a squat somewhere. I'm just not positive." Yeah, but, we learned it from um there was a band called Thatron Acid. Yes. Um, and uh we were no touring one. with them. They're great friends. Uh, we had a great time with them. And uh, I, we were playing a show in, I think it was Den Haag in, in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. It might have been Rotterdam. I'm not sure. It was one of those two. And it was like a little, I remember it was like an uh, anti-fascist festival or something like that. I can't remember exactly. And But I went backstage and the Thatcher and Acid guys were all sitting around a table slamming a cup down and yelling at each other. And I was like, what are you guys doing? And they said, we're playing this game. You want to play? And I sat down and they taught me the rules. It's a liar's dice game. Um, and I won my first, the first time I played, I won. Wow, that <laughs> and was the, it. And when the game was over, I took the two die and I put them in my pocket. And I carried those things with me until about five years ago when someone stole uh, this little bag I had in my out of my jacket, but those no dice, yeah, they tri- that they, they, I carry those dice everywhere because you always need to have a pair of dice in case a, a game of cricket might break out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait! When you lost your bag with your dice in it, did your luck turn? Did everything just go to shit? For the, no, it's not about on? no. It wasn't oh. luck. Okay, it was just. I mean, here's the thing about items you carry. I carry. I've carried items with me, and they sure. might be. They're tokens, but what they really are is they're story starters. Mm, mm-hmm. That's all they are. Mm-hmm. You know, you pick them out and go, like, oh, yeah, like here's a story about that. Like, you know, mm. otherwise they're just things you carry around with you. I didn't attach any significant. The only bad luck was that someone stole a bag with a bunch of like some money and some other things in it. I was yeah, sad yeah. about that, but, um, but what I did. You know, after I searched, I was in New York City and I searched all the trash cans and looked everywhere and didn't have any luck with it. I sat down and I wrote up an exhaustive list of contents, including the story behind all the things in that bag. Huh. So that's essentially what those, that's what, that's what these little items are for. Right. They're, mm. they're just memories encased in an object. And if you lose the object, then write down the memory while you still have it. Right. Jot it down. Now, the name Kariki came about. Initially, you know, we were the evens, and we thought, mm-hmm. of course, we'll be the odds. Because hmm. it seemed like the perfect name, the odds. But um, at some point, I, I looked online. I did an internet search and discovered that there was quite a few bands called the odds, mm-hmm. including one from Canada um, that were – successful and and you know they're called may odds or the uh, i think there's called odds and i read in their wikipedia entry that at one point i think they had broken up and um and then one of the, some of the guys took the name and started put out a record of that name and the other guys got back together but then they had to actually sue to get the name back and even i mm. saw that it was a contentious issue and another strange thing about me is that Though I don't think of myself as, you know, hugely successful or whatever. Like, I don't think I'm, I'm not like, like a Mick Jagger guy or something, but I'm newsworthy. So 
in the blogosphere, right? Like in the internet world, I'm for some reason it's newsworthy. So if I called a band called the Odds, if I say I have a band called the Odds, people who have proprietary sort of a proprietary sense about their that name, mm, for they sure, would yeah. they would be maybe alerted to that. Like my name is Ian. Do you know how many people are called Ian in the world? We seem to be, <laughs> right. We seem to be doing fine, right? But yes. with bands, it's a there's this weird commercial component to it, which is can be a little frustrating. Um, so we just left that. We're like, there's no point in getting involved. Like we thought odds DC or, but it just seemed. Let's just leave it. And then Brendan had said early on, yo, you should call your band Kariki because in Kariki, the winning role is three. Mm-hmm. That's the trump. That's the thing that wins every time. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really disturbed by the fact that that word has been so soiled. But um, Trump, that is. But um, yeah. <laughs> but um, it just bothers me that I it's, talk about that. I know, but, but we're not going to. But I just want to say that <laughs> I feel like that word. I wish it could be reclaimed because that's such a perfect word. The trump card, you know, the the thing right. that, that just wins. Um, it's it's complicated, and I, I the, maybe we need to come up with. The, maybe I will have to get a, a thesaurus out and try to find a different word. But um. But in the beginning, we were like, ah, you know, it's cool, but who wants to have to explain what it means the whole time? Like, oh, we got it from a dice game. But at some point, we needed a name, or it's going to be Ian's new band, right? Right, <laughs> right. And we're like, I'll just do it with Kariki. And it turned out that Kariki was kind of brilliant because, um, or I don't mean we were brilliant, but the name is brilliant because, first off, it's not online. Like, you get zero hits online, yep. like which is great. But the even better is that, Nobody knows how to spell it. Mm. Everybody had a different spelling. And mm. I even called Ben Corrigan, the person who taught it to me, right? The guy from Thatcher and Acid who was sort of the person that actually explained to me the rules of the – I said, how do you spell it? He's like, I have no fucking idea, right? And like um, nobody knows how to spell it. And I've seen so many, you know, Q-U-E-R-I-C-K-Y-K-I-R-I-K. You know, everyone has different spelling. So – um, it just becomes even more, uh, you just can't get a hold of it. it. Just slips away from you every time. I love it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's great. It's a great story. I mean, and that's, you know, I think that even just hearing, um, that you wrote down the story of each of those, those objects. And I think that's one of the things that's, that's Hold in on, many me. ways been lost like storytelling, right? Like it, it just is such a great and amazing, it's a, it's its own art form. Let me see if I can find – hold on a second. I might actually – let me see if I have it. I might have that. Um, yeah, this is – it was stolen in um, 2016. And this is a thing called an attempt to inventory the contents of Ian's stolen bag. All right. So here's the entry about the dice. A pair of dice. These dice were the, from the first Kariki, no one knows how to spell this, game I ever played. Keep in mind, this is written in 2016, long before the band. Mm-hmm. This occurred backstage at a show at a venue called Unitas in oh, Wageningen, Netherlands. That's where it was. On September 8th, 1990, we were playing with a British band called Thatcher and Acid, whose members we've been friends with for a couple of years. Ben Corrigan was the guitarist and singer. Big Sean was the bass player, and Andy was a drummer. At some point in the evening, I came across them sitting at a table playing a boisterous game of dice. When I asked what the game was, they told me it was Kariki, and they gave me a quick lesson and invited me to sit in the next round. 
It's a game of liar's dice, and though I'd never played anything like it, I ended up winning the first game I played. Standing up from the game, I put the dice in my pocket, and they rode with me for the next 26 years. Fugazi played many, many games of Kariki and taught it to a number of other people, most notably Steve Albini, who then taught every band that came through his studio. For years, it seemed like an obsessive activity for many of the touring bands that came through town. Last year, 2015 that is, Ben Corrigan came through Washington with Johanna, uh, jo- Johanna Newsom. He's our tour manager. And Amy and I stopped by to say hello to him. He was stunned when I produced the pair of dice. Whoa. <laughs> what a great story. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Ian. Sure. Um, we're, we're actually right up on an hour right now. Did you get any? Did you ask me any of the questions you wanted to ask me? <laughs> no, I don't give a shit about them. I'm going to be totally honest. This has been an absolute joy. You're a national treasure. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, this has been a great. I love this conversation. It's been yeah, fantastic. I, yeah. I, I I feel like you know, and the reason we do, I'll be. We I don't think we even talked to you about this, or I didn't email you about it because I was so just trying to get you to come on the show. The reason we do this is to give people some kind of you know inspiration or have them feel good after they listen to it. That's why we don't, we try not to talk about a lot of politics. We have a, had a couple kind of more political people on. Wait, it. what? <laughs> but not, no, we try not to, but we try not to get down about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And next, yeah. and next week Antifa is on. Yeah. But, right. but the fact of the matter is we, we try to spin positive out of it. Right. Um, right. Correct. Yes. And, and Absolutely. so, you know, I just like, I, no, I don't, I mean, the questions are, you, you covered most of it in different ways anyway. So if I would have phrased the question, it, it it wouldn't have come out the way that you answered it already. So there's mm-hmm. not, it's not, it's kind of useless to some degree. I think, um, you know, I will encourage people to listen to that record. It's the, your new record. It's fantastic. It, it is. It's, it's really By the good. way, according to Wikipedia, it is C O R I K Y. That's yeah. Cause that's based yeah. on us. Yeah. Yes. That's, yeah. According to your Wikipedia. Sorry. Yeah. According to your Wikipedia. And that's, right, and but, that's, that's how, how it, we, but Amy chose that spelling. That's like so it, in my journal entry here, there's this content of a bag, stolen bag. I spell it K-O-R-I-C-K-Y, I think. Let me see how I spelled it. Hold on a second. Yeah, I spelled it K-O-R-I-C-K-Y. But Amy had <laughs> Amy, I love I love her so much. She said, she was, I think I'm gonna start with a C. She goes, like, you never want to put two K's in a word together because a third one might show up. And, you know, and I thought that was such a brilliant, like, <laughs> you, know, you want to keep the K's, of, you don't want too many K's in one place. Um, so, I, you know, cheap and she decided to look better and it doesn't matter. Really. It's just a name. You know, yeah. the English language is really interesting that in, until I would say, I don't know what you, I mean, I'd have to, I don't, I wish I could date it exactly, but until not that long ago, spelling, there was no real mandatory spelling. The whole point of letters and spelling was to to give somebody, to be able to communicate to somebody what the word was. So if you look it's at a old, symbol. Right. So, yeah. So you look at old, like in the 19th century or like you'll see, you know, spelled shop, spelled with two P's and the E or whatever. People had spelled any way they, they wanted to spell. They just spelled things. And and it's and actually the only area in, in, in life now that you still see this in practice is in names. Yeah. Think about the mm. way people spell the name like Jennifer, you know, G-E-N-N-I-F-E-R, J-E-N-I-F-E-R, J-E-N-N-I-F, you know, J-Y-N. I mean, it's like that's the one area where like it's it's just a it 
the sound it's just put across the sound and uh so spelling is sort of it, it became man sort of mandated at some point because or you know what's the word i'm looking for when you became it was a govern like a good was a government yeah, like, standardized yeah, standardized yeah. right it was it, it was a time probably um i wonder if it had to do with the you know, the way things were being printed or you know the one press started coming in and books were being right, made. Right. Um, it's really, really interesting. So in some ways, like we may well change the spelling of our name on our next record because especially now the, you know, the internet is so absolutely like the ones and zeros require that kind of accuracy, right? Like, you know, if you have, they do though, you're reminding me now that text has very much gone the way of spell things. However you yes, want. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But if you think about like, but if you're looking, if you're searching something on the internet, if right. you spell it wrong, it may guess it, but a lot of times you, you just, you're out of luck, you yeah. know? So it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's inter- but that's, you know, it's the weather just accordingly. That's, that's yeah. all I can tell you. That's the way it is in life. And I just want to say one thing just in terms of the political situation. Um, yeah. Sure. Please. Um, Please. and I said this right after the inauguration, um, it's a giant ship we live on right mm. and crazy people are at the helm <laughs> right yep. and they may yeah. well try to steer this thing into the fucking like into a tree or do something and they might think they can steer really steer the direction of it but the tide the current they can't control that right and the current goes forward and that's progress mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. these motherfuckers think they might be in control of things no, they're not. We are. And it will move progressively in the right direction. It's just going to be a little bit frantic on the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's well that's about as perfect as we could uh, call the night. So, Ian, seriously, thank you so much. Sure. I mean, it really, like, super great conversation, exactly what we'd love to do and just let people talk. And not try to direct too much. So, like what you were saying, let the let the tide go where it goes. Right. So, and thanks yes, for your thank- patience. I know it took us months, but I just it's just it's the way it is with me. I just yeah. But I was like, oh, we got to fucking get this thing done because I just kept like, oh yeah, I'll get there. But and then the problem is me. I really like I said earlier. I don't care about the future. It's true. I don't. I just do the day. Yeah. So I don't hey, ever it all worked out. Yeah. So I just so for me, I always think like. Oh yeah, we'll just do that. I'll have plenty of time tomorrow or next day or next week. And then I get to the next week. I'm like, oh, but it's today and I'm busy. So I just it's just the way my mind works. But I do try to um if I say I'm gonna do something, I try to do it. Yeah. You know, that's well, my thing. And it just takes a while. So I appreciate your patience on that. But I also I told you we're flexible and it worked yeah. out. So I'm I'm really glad it did. I, I I just I feel it's you know, it's it's it, this isn't an easy time at certain times, and I, it just feels good to be able to do this. This is a really good artistic release right now. My band is not practicing because we're all over the country. Yeah. So uh, p- for me to do this is a is a really good format to kind of get some stuff out as well and, and listen to people that really inspire me. So I totally appreciate it. I can dig it. Yep. Cool. All right. Thanks, Ian, and Big thanks for listening, everybody. Yep. Yeah. Thanks. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.